My name's Nick. Uh, as, Paul, as Paul said, I'm the, the lead pastor here, bringing you guys God's word. If I haven't met you, um, love to meet you afterwards. But for now, let's um, let's open our Bibles. Let's open our Bibles. Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, um, verses 7 through 20. That's what we're going to read. I'll read that and pray. Before I do, let me just give a quick uh, uh, disclaimer here. So some of you guys are familiar with the fact that we usually send out like a weekly e-newsletter. Um, my bad on that. Uh, since Danielle had the, the uh, their little um, Mabel, uh, I was supposed to pick that up and I didn't. Uh, so I'll try to get into that uh, for you guys and send you out some more details each week through the e-newsletter. Uh, I just wanted to uh, confess right here in front of you all. Uh, my apologies. Um, but let's see. Let's read uh, verse 7 all the way down through verse 20 of Luke 9. Pray and then uh, we'll get in. It says this. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we're here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we were to go and buy food for all of these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, well, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Let's pray. God, there's a lot here. There's so much in this story that we won't even touch on today. 
But God, it's, it's my great desire that you would, um, as it seems you did for Peter and the disciples, you would reveal yourself to us through this miraculous meal in the wilderness, through the breaking of bread. But I pray that today, man, I know a lot of us, like the crowd pursuing you there, we're in need of healing. We're broken in places we're ashamed to admit. Some of us can't hide it anymore. We can't put putty over the, the cracks. The foundations are broken. The walls are coming down. Everyone can see it. We need help. God, we need you. And I'm praying today, Lord, that you would meet us each in a way that you know we specifically need it. I'm praying today that you would reveal yourself, your grace, your power, your majesty, your love. In the way that each of us needs it today. I love it. I love it. I love the fact that you don't expect us to come and bring you anything other than our need and our praise. Because you're the God who meets that need. But here we are. So Jesus, would you come? Amen. Um you well, I should say this because I didn't get to uh, hand out, to make a handout for you this week. Um, the title of this message, uh, just kind of log it away. Um, you might not understand it uh, in the moment, but hopefully by the end you will. The title of this message is Beheld in the Breaking. And the idea is going to be, as we'll see, that Jesus reveals himself in a unique, in a particular way to these people, and in many other instances actually, through the breaking of bread. That's why you'll see, um, even though we just partook of uh, communion last week together, we're going to do the same uh, here again today. Um, Beheld in the breaking. Now, This is our second week on this text. Um, Last time we dealt with it, I began by pointing out something I'll bring to the table again today. And that is that apart from the resurrection of Jesus, this miracle, this feeding of the 5,000 that we read here, and, and likely many of you are familiar with it, whether you have a background in church or not, this miracle here in the wilderness, this feeding of the 5,000, is the only other miracle apart from the resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels. That should give us reason to pause for a moment and consider, I think it's an indication um, that the Holy Spirit, the early church, thought that this event in the wilderness, the breaking of bread here and distributing so that 5,000 men and who knows however many children and women were fed to the full and there were leftovers to take home. This event, it seems to me, must have had radical significance. 
And last time we drew out some of the significance with regards to what I called missiology or the mission and ministry of the church. We looked at the implications this uh, miraculous meal has for our own ministries and our own mission and how really if you look here, it's awesome. It's this vivid, beautiful picture of what I hope my whole ministry is all about, and that is, man, they can't produce anything in and of themselves. The ministers, the disciples, we got nothing, but what we can do is say, okay, you break that bread, give it to us, and we'll set your accomplishments before the people. We can give them what only you can do. That's ministry. That's the mission of the church. That was last time. Now, this week, we're going to start to tease out some of the significance here with regards to what I would call Christology. In other words, the person and work of Jesus the Christ. Because it seems to me that from the way Luke frames this story, and I tried to emphasize it by even the way I delineated the text. I don't know if you saw it, but you will, I hope, in a moment. It would seem, though, from the way Luke frames this story and our text here, that there is something particularly revelatory about this meal in the wilderness. That there is something in this breaking of bread that uh, provides breakthrough concerning Jesus' identity, who he is, Christology, you could say. Now, that's what we're going to get into here this morning. The revelation of Jesus, the fact that he can be beheld in the breaking Now, before I show you this in our text, I actually want to remind you uh, that for chapters now, for chapters now, the um, the people surrounding Jesus, the crowds and everyone watching in Galilee and everywhere else uh, around where Christ is doing his stuff, everyone's trying to figure out who this guy is. It's kind of been the great burden of Luke's gospel, especially since Jesus um, moves out onto the the public scene uh, to kind of show us that everyone is trying to figure out who Jesus is. So that's why, as we'll see uh, throughout uh, Luke's gospel, Jesus will be uh, doing all these miracles, doing these things, and then Luke will specifically accent the people's responses to it. Let me give you just a few examples. As Jesus begins his public ministry, uh, Luke takes us immediately to the synagogue there in Nazareth, where he unrolls that scroll and Isaiah says, today it's been fulfilled. Everybody just sits back and goes, okay, wait a minute. Is not this Joseph's son? In other words, who in the world does this guy think he is? Today this scripture has been fulfilled. Is this not Joseph's son? Luke 4:22. And when Jesus later chapter 5 verse 21 when he declares the paralytic's sins forgiven. Remember that? Hey, what's harder to tell him to get up and walk or to tell him that his sins are forgiven? When he declares that this man's sins are forgiven, how did the people around respond? This is what we read. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, "Who is this who speaks these blasphemies?" Who is this guy? Where did he come from? From Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Who does he think he is? Wrestling with 
the identity of Jesus. Even John the Baptist, it seems, is wrestling with who uh, this Jesus actually is. Even the forerunner to the Messiah, when he's thrown in prison, you remember this, he sends his disciples out to, to, to talk to Jesus. He's like, listen, I need you to go and ask them this. Luke 7, verse 19, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In other words, I'm trying to figure out who you are. Are you the Christ I thought you were, the Messiah I thought you were, or not? When Jesus forgives the sins of a prostitute, do you remember that woman? At least we think she's probably a prostitute. you remember that woman who, who comes into the dinner scene and she's weeping and he welcomes her and he tells her that her sins are forgiven? Well, do you remember the response that Luke brings our attention to in verse 49 of chapter 7? Those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Again, who is this? Or fast forward now to chapter 8, verse 25, and Jesus and his disciples are on the Sea of Galilee in a boat, and the, the whirlwind, we're told, starts blowing, and the, 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 the boat is sinking, and Jesus silences it with a word. It's just a calm one word from this man's mouth, and we're given their response. It says this, the disciples were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? So the whole burden of Luke's gospel since Jesus' arrival on the scene, but really even before that, if you remember Mary treasuring things up in her heart as guys were talking about Jesus, like, whoa, what, this is my son? I mean, every mommy thinks that her, her boy is, is like legit, but I think there might be something about this one in particular, right? So ever since the beginning, it seems, this idea has been the burden of Luke's gospel. Been, who is this Child, who is this man? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And I think we are meant to kind of go along with him on this journey and all these people and, and start to ask the same sorts of questions. There is no more important question in all the universe that you can ask than this one. Who then is this? Coming to a conclusion about the person of Jesus Christ is the most significant conclusion you will ever come to. Whether you come to the right one or not, the road divides at that point forever. But as we read on in Luke, the questions continue. The tension builds and it carries now into our text into verses 7 through 9 of chapter 9, where now news of Jesus has reached even the palace. Even Herod the Tetrarch is forced to uh, respond, forced to come to some sort of conclusion about who this man is. You see it there in verse 9. Who is this, Herod asks, about whom I hear such things? Who is this? Causing a stir in my countryside here. 
What am I supposed to make of him? Now, it's at this point that we're given three uh, of perhaps the, the, the primary options that have been held out by the people and the crowds up to this point. We're given, again, three of them, and we see them uh, there in the verses that follow. Maybe he's John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Maybe he's Elijah, some are saying. I don't know if you remember, but um, Elijah never died. Elijah was taken up into heaven, and then in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, we're told that he's going to show back up in one way or another uh, before the coming of the Lord, and things get, things get real. He's going to turn the children back to the Father. So Elijah's this big kind of end-time figure. They're going, maybe this is Elijah. Or there's a third option held out. Maybe he's a prophet, they say, like one of those from of old. Now, um, Moses, in Deuteronomy 18, before he's about to die outside the land, they're going to lay him down. He tells Israel this. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. I mean, this was a sad day in Israel when Moses is about to is about to die. I mean, think of all that that man did for them. Think of what he stood for in their eyes. And he's saying, that's it for me. I've run my race. He says, but there's going to come a prophet like me. God's going to raise him up sometime in the future. And there's this expectation that this prophet would come. And so it's likely that many in Israel, these crowds looking in at Jesus are going, maybe he's that guy. Maybe he's the, the prophet like Moses from of old, come to bring some sort of new deliverance for us. So the tension concerning Jesus's identity is building. And it's highlighted here, even at the beginning of our text, who is he? The crowds are asking, the disciples are asking, Herod is asking, and then, and this is what's wild, in verses 18 through 20, the bottom part of the frame of our text, Jesus himself is asking. Jesus himself pushes uh, the issue, forces the issue a little bit more. And it's in this context that the answer is finally supplied. Look at this, verse 18. Jesus asks, who do the crowds say that I am? And the same three things show up again, right? Uh, John the Baptist, maybe, maybe Elijah, maybe prophet like someone from of old. But then he presses in a bit harder. Verse 20, okay, who do you say that I am? Okay, disciples, we've, we, we've, we've, uh, we've got it figured out what the crowds are thinking. Who do you say that I am? Let's get personal now for a moment. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. He got it right. Now, you need to understand, you need to see the significance of this moment. To this point, the angels 
have identified Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the promised uh, one of God who's going to bring redemption to his people. Angels have identified it. Demons have identified it. But this is the very first time that that confession, you are the Christ, has been taken by human lips. So it's a big deal. But now, here's what I want you to see. Herod's confusion, verses 7 through 9 gives way in verses 18 through 20 uh, with, with Peter's confession. From confusion, who is this about whom I'm hearing all these things, to confession, you are the Christ of God. And in between this frame, we have what? The feeding of the 5,000. This meal in the wilderness, the breaking of bread. Implication, there's revelation in this miracle. Luke frames it the way that he does to bring this out from confusion. Who is this? To confession. He is the Christ because of what happened here in the wilderness. There's revelation here. Jesus' identity is clarified by way of this meal. It, unveil, it unveils something to us of who he is and what he's come to do. It's the feeding of the 5,000, it seems, that tips the scales, as it were, from confusion to confession. Jesus is somehow beheld in the breaking. And I want to spend the rest of our time simply asking, how? How does this work? What did they see? How do we go from confusion to confession? Because I want us to join Peter in this confession. You are the Christ of God. His brothers and sisters, it's going to get challenged. It's going to get rough for us in the days ahead. There are going to be periods in your life, if not already and right now in this room, where you are going to face, is Jesus worth following or not? Is he the Christ? Is he the one? I mean, Jesus is about to force the issue again with his disciples almost right after this when he says, listen, okay, you think I'm the Christ? Okay, you want to follow me? Take up your cross. And let's go. In other words, I mean, don't just give me half your chips. Don't just kind of hedge your bets. And I, I think you're kind of, no, we're going to go all in or we're not going to go in at all. So I want us to be confessing with Peter in this. I want us to have roots deep understanding. Man, where do we get this? That Jesus is the Christ. And what exactly does that mean? And how do we keep that ever before us? So. I'm going to organize my thoughts under three headings. First, Jesus is the new and greater. Second, Jesus is the Christ of God. And third, Jesus is going to die and rise. So first, Jesus is the new and greater. You remember that uh, some of the people... And the crowds following Jesus thought, man, maybe 
This guy is the new Moses, like the prophet of old. Maybe he is the, a new sort of Elijah, like Elijah's return and, and the end time is coming. Well, they're actually not all that far off from the truth. And you can kind of see why people might start to think that. In fact, this miraculous meal here in our text, the feeding of the 5,000, actually has striking parallels with two meals that came hundreds of years earlier in the Old Testament. One meal at the hands of Moses, and another meal that shows up during the Elijah-Elisha narrative in First and Second Kings. The first one with Moses is, I think, pretty familiar to most of us. It's the manna in the wilderness. I mean, you remember this, hopefully. If not, I'll refresh your memory. God redeems his people in the Exodus from slavery in Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea into the wilderness, and they're stoked, they're singing songs, and then they turn, realize where they are, and go, man, you brought us out here to kill us. There's no food here. What are we going to do? I can't just, you know, go back to the meat pots or whatever it was that they had there in Egypt. What is going to happen now? So they're grumbling at God, grumbling at Moses, but God responds how? Exodus 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Bread's going to just come down from heaven for you every day. What you need will be there. And he did it for 40 years. Every day of their wilderness sojourn. So, yes, as Jesus welcomes the hungry crowd in the wilderness in our text. As he looks up to heaven, breaks and distributes bread miraculously until all are satisfied. God is marking him out. As something of a new Moses come to uh, bring a, a new exodus, a new redemption for his people. Light bulbs are going off for the people of Israel as they're watching this going on. They know their Bibles way better probably than we do. Now fast forward because there's more. Um, fast forward in Israel's history to uh, a period perhaps even more tragic and chaotic. The monarchy has been established. And Israel is going up and down. Kings are turning. The kingdom is divided. And God raises up Elijah. God raises up Elijah to kind of stand in the gap for his people and, and, and call them back to covenant faithfulness. And Elijah, we're told, then literally kind of passes his cloak on to Elisha. We're told that the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. Elijah goes up to heaven. The ministry continues on with Elisha. And then we come to 2 Kings 4. And we read, there's a famine in the land. And a man comes to Elisha the prophet with 20 loaves of barley. Sound familiar? 
Verse 42 of 2 Kings 4. Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. So in other words, take the 20 and give it to the men that they may eat. There's a 100. His servant said, how can I set this 20 loaves before a 100 men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Now, again, parallels just abound. Things should just be kind of lighting up for us in this moment as we consider our text back in Luke 9. They are again in a desolate place. There's no food around. There's insufficient bread, but it's taken up. It's broken. It's given to the people and they are satisfied to a degree that there are even leftovers. And what's more than that, we see the same sort of pushback in our text, do we not? Just like with Elisha and his servants saying, Man, I'm not going to do this. We can't do it. 20 for 100 doesn't make sense. Jesus' disciples, what are, you, what are you telling us to feed 5,000 men with five loaves? Are you kidding me? So again, parallels. And again, Jesus is being marked off by God, as it were, as a new sort of Elijah or Elisha. A new prophet uh, that's standing in the gap for God's people. But now, though these parallels are clear and conspicuous, even to the passive observer, the essential meaning here is actually not in the parallels, but rather in what we might call the perpendiculars. In other words, the way that the stories differ. What we come to find out as we kind of look at what Jesus is doing in the wilderness and compare it to this thing with Moses and Elisha is that, yes, Jesus in many ways is, 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 new, is the new Moses, new Elijah, Elisha, whatever you want to say. But at the same time, he's so much greater. He's so much greater. You compare it to Moses and the story there, and what you realize is that, okay, yes, manna came down from heaven, and that was awesome, but man, there was none left over. Exodus 16 tells us there was none left over. That was part of the deal with the manna. It was just enough for the day. But then we read in our text, Luke 9, that there were 12 baskets left over. As if God's kind of hinting at, man, there is something that the Messiah is bringing that is just going to overflow. It's grace spilling over. It's a banquet that will never end. You say, okay, well, wait a minute. I thought that in the scene with Elisha, we're told that they ate some and had a little leftover. Yeah, sure. But do you see again how what Jesus is doing is so much greater? Elisha takes 20 loaves and feeds 100. Jesus takes five and feeds 5,000, and Matthew tells us that's not including women and children. So up to 20,000 estimates. In other words, yes, he is a new Elijah, you could say, a new Moses, you could say, but he is something so much greater. God is not just replaying past events. He's not just kind of, getting a kick out of making these connections and doing like a little cyclical thing here. He's actually moving forward. These past events were God's way of preparing his people, 
of wetting their appetites, uh, of getting them to look to the horizon with anticipation for an even greater day, for an even greater redemption. One that the author of Hebrews tells us is eternal. He's wanting in Moses and in Elijah to get his people looking for the arrival of his son. The Christ. The one who, as we'll see, is the bread. Come down from heaven. Broken for us. This is why it's pretty awesome. Um, We'll see this in the weeks ahead. But if you keep reading in Luke 9, you realize that um, soon after, just a few verses later, Jesus takes three up to that mount they call the Mount of Transfiguration. Because there on the mountain, he's going to be transfigured before them, just dazzling in glory. And what do we read there? It's, it's incredible. Who shows up talking to Jesus in that moment? Moses and Elijah. As if to say, okay, all right, all right, all right. Moses and Elijah were kind of directing us towards the Christ. But then there's something even uh, even more awesome that happens. Do you remember God? Like Peter is looking and he's going, whoa, this is crazy. Who's that? And, oh, we should set up some tents and all this. And then God shows up and speaks from the glory cloud. And, and this is what he says. Verse 35 of Luke 9. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found, what? Alone. Moses and Elijah are there. God speaks This is my son. This is my chosen one. Listen to him. And by the time the glory kind of dims out just enough so you could see, Moses and Elijah are gone and Jesus is there alone. Again, the implication is plain. Moses and Elijah were just pointers. The point of all that they did, the manna, whatever else, the passing on the mantle to Elisha and the feeding of these people here. All that they did, directing people to the one that they should listen to, the one that they should follow, the Son of God, the Christ, the Christ. So, first, Jesus is the new and greater. Now, Jesus is the Christ of God. I know I'm doing a lot. Some, some of my messages are going to weigh heavier on application. Some of my messages are going to weigh heavy in Bible. This one, I know I got Bible for you. I hope you're all right with that. You need to stretch. You can stretch. Uh, I got one application point coming for us at the end of the sermon. I'm making you work for it. Make you work for it. Jesus is the Christ of God. Not just Elijah. Not just a prophet like Moses. The Christ. Peter, it seems, has come to some understanding of this. So he confesses it. He sees there's, there's, there's deeper roots to this. There's more to it than what happened in the days of old. This is something even greater. It's as if as he watched Jesus welcome and heal any who had need there in the wilderness... As he watched Jesus break and distribute the bread and the fish, as he watched the crowds eat to the point of satisfaction, as he contemplated the meaning of the twelve baskets left over, it's as if perhaps God brought to his mind this prophecy from Isaiah concerning what's known as the Messianic banquet, the feast, the party 
that the Messiah will throw at the end of the age. You're not going to want to miss this one. Let me read it to you, Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Doesn't that sound incredible? I mean, the richest food you can imagine, the best wine, death swallowed up, tears wiped away, reproach, shame, guilt, no more. Forever. The world knows no party like this. I mean, it's really interesting. Um, in Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel as well, before this party in the wilderness, as we might say, with Jesus and the, the banquet that he's throwing there uh, in the wilderness, um, Mark and Matthew record the banquet that Herod throws. Right? The one where he's having this feast in his palace and it's all this gluttony and he's got everything you'd think you'd want, but it ends in death. Does it not literally? And then you come out here to the wilderness with the Messiah where you think there's nothing to be found. You think there's no life here. This is where everything goes to die. And it's here where life is found. It's here where the beginnings of this sort of party is taking place. So Peter, it seems to me, starts to see this sort of thing hinted at in the wilderness there in our text. It's as if he's kind of saying, man, I think something like that, Isaiah 25, 6 through 9 thing, is being kicked off here. Everyone being healed, everyone being fed, and it's all just kind of coming from this Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. You are... The Christ of God. You're not just Moses or Elijah. You're the Christ. Jesus will respond essentially, yes. Yes, you're right. I'm going to be the one who brings in the banquet. I'm going to be the one making room for you around the table. I'm going to be the one that that, that takes care of, of your tears. I'm going to be the one that swallows up death forever, but I'm going to do it in a way that you're not going to expect, Peter. When you say Christ, I fear you don't understand what all God has loaded into that word, that title. It's going to come in a way that we don't expect. And Jesus pushes back on Peter and he says, essentially, listen, nobody saw it coming, though they should. But the way I'm going to swallow up death forever is I'm going to let death swallow me. I'm going to let 
death swallow me. That's why if we keep reading after Peter's confession, we see that Jesus immediately pushes back on him there in verse 22. Verse 22 of Luke 9, we read this. The Son of Man, Jesus says, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. So Peter's going, yes, you're the Christ. Let's get this party started. Let's take care of Rome. Let's start to establish the banquet hall right here and now. Let's go. Jesus says, okay, yes, I'm the Christ. But before we get to all that, I'm going to die. I got to die. So third, first we saw that Jesus is the new and greater. Second, Jesus is the Christ of God. But now we see that Jesus is going to die and rise. Peter beheld much in the breaking of bread there in the wilderness. He beheld much of Christ. He made connections. He saw God opened his eyes to a lot about Jesus. He is the Christ. But there were still plenty of things there that he did not see. So what Jesus is going to do to help him see this, to help his disciples, to help us see this, is actually what? Give us another meal. He's going to just add meal upon meal, just layer upon layer, helping us see what's been there all along in the breaking of bread. Do you remember? You probably know where I'm going. But I wonder if you noticed um, John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. He says it's taking place during the Passover. The feeding of the 5,000, Luke 9, taking place during the Passover. Well, exactly a year later, Jesus is going to do another meal and another Passover. He's gathered his disciples again around the table this time. He's got bread again. And just like he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples there in the wilderness... Same thing he's going to do around the table now on the eve of his death there in Jerusalem. Last Supper. We read this, Luke 22, verse 19. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body. Now he's going to just spell it out. Don't miss this. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I'm bringing in the banquet. But here's what I want you to get. This bread broken is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It wasn't just about your bellies. It's about your souls. I am the bread. I am the bread. I was the bread broken there so that the 5,000 plus could eat. I was the bread foreshadowed coming down with Moses from heaven and then there with Elisha as it multiplied and fed these people in a famine. I am the bread. I need to give my life. If sinners are going to be uh, invited to the table to the banquet of the kingdom of heaven, then someone has to pay for their sin. You catch that? Someone has to pay for my sin. Otherwise, what in the world am I doing there? Eating with God. 
fellowshipping with God, worshiping God. Jesus says, I am the bread, broken. They behold him in the breaking. A layer deeper, a little bit more. But they still, they still don't see everything he wants them to see. They still don't fully get it, even though he's told them again and again and again, guys, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise. When he dies, when Judas rolls in with the mob and they they get him, uh, they bind him up and take him in, falsely accuse, condemn, and ultimately crucify him. When he dies, the disciples assume it's over. It's over. I mean, we thought he was the one, but it's over now. Even though a few days from then, really what we see is it's not over at all. It's truly the beginning. It's the pre-party, if you will. I mean, it's, it's just getting started. But these disciples, they're still wearing black. They're still mourning. In Luke 24, what's, what's Jesus going to do? What's Jesus going to do to reveal to these disciples the deeper layer of it all? That he is not just dead, not just broken for the world, but also alive. He's going to give them another meal. He's going to break bread again and show them another layer. He's going to let them behold a little bit more of him in the breaking. It's amazing. Luke 24, we read that two of them were on the road headed towards uh, this village uh, called Emmaus. And as they're going, Jesus rolls up alongside them. It shows up. They don't even recognize him. Their eyes are so blinded. Okay, and they're looking at him going, man, why aren't you crying? Why is that smile? Why that smile off your face? Haven't you heard what happened in uh, Jerusalem? Three days ago, Jesus was crucified. The one we thought was the Christ. The one we thought who was going to, you know, redeem us. He's gone. It's over. You should, you should be wearing black like us. I just imagine the face, you know, palm to the face at this point. What do I got to do? So he gives them again another meal. This is what we read. He breaks bread with them once more. Luke 24, verse 30. When he was at table with these two disciples, he took the bread and again, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And then we read verse 31. Their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. Verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was, catch this, known to them in the breaking of the bread. We saw a layer we didn't see before around the table of the Last Supper. We didn't see before in the wilderness when he fed the 5,000. We didn't see before in the Old Testament with the stories of Elisha or Moses. We saw another layer. 
That yes, he would be broken for our sins and the sins of the world. But no, that would not be the end of the story. It would be the beginning of the party. Because he will rise. He was made known to us in the breaking of the bread. So the broken bread of Moses and Elisha helps us long for and anticipate the Christ. Looking ahead for him. The broken bread set before the 5,000 in the wilderness helps us identify the Christ. Okay, wait a minute. I'm putting these things together. He's new, but he's also great. He is the Christ. The broken bread around the table of the Last Supper helps us identify his sacrificial death. And then the broken bread on the road to Emmaus helps us see, man, he's alive. He's victorious. He has swallowed up death forever by letting death swallow him first. And all of this prepares us for the heavenly banquet of the Christ where at last we will see him not in a mirror dimly, but face to face, beholding him around the table as we break bread. He is, he is beheld in the breaking. And this is why, you guys, as the the, the early church kind of starts there in Jerusalem and Luke records for us in the book of Acts what they're all about. What does the early church devote themselves to? Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Which I take to mean, given all that Luke adds to that phrase earlier, the Lord's Supper, the meal that, 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 that is symbolic of Christ's death and life given for us, that they devote themselves to that meal, to participating in that together, because they know that is how God reveals himself to his people. He is revealed in the breaking of the bread. So, here we are. We did all of that work, and I'm proud of you. You made it, even through some distractions. (laughs) We did all of that work for one main application point. And that's this. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, when we come together and we break bread together, it is a big deal. It is one of the ways that God reveals himself to us again and again and again. And every layer of the gospel comes to life. I love what N.T. Wright says. He writes this. When Jesus wanted fully to explain what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give a theory. He didn't even give them a set of scriptural texts. He gave them a meal. He gave them a meal. Now, why? Why did Jesus give us a meal? Why does he reveal himself to us in the breaking of the bread? I think, I think, because sometimes it's just not enough to hear God loves you. 
It's not enough. Man, I give my life to preaching the gospel, right? I'll spend my life telling you Jesus died for you, gave his life for you. He loves you. He washes you, forgives you, cleanses you, welcomes you. I will spend my life declaring that with words to your ears. But he gives us a meal because he knows sometimes words don't do what all the other senses can can get at when you can see and you can taste and you can touch and and the, the whole body is engaged it's why people talk about uh, uh, communion as a visible sermon if you will it's like the difference between you know talking to your your your, your lover on the phone and then actually seeing her face to face right although again I'm not going Catholic on you here. <laughs> I'm not saying that he's really there under the bread. I, I am saying, though, that just like, man, his spirit meets when I preach the word, I hope, and convicts and reveals himself to us, he does the same with this. It's a visible sermon. It's a sermon for all the senses. It's gospel show and tell. It's him barraging our, our, our sight and, and our taste and, and every part of us with his love. Let me just show you what this meal communicates, how he is revealed to us, how he can be beheld by us in the breaking. And this is where we'll close. As the unleavened bread is broken, are you not reminded that the sinless one was broken on the cross for you? Is it not this tangible expression that Christ gave his life. It isn't just words. He gave his life. For your sin. Your sins are paid. You are washed. You are forgiven. And because of that. Now think about this. As you come out of your seat. And you walk to the table. To pick up the elements. Is it not this vivid reminder for your soul that you are welcomed around the table of God? Like, I can say that all I want, but there's something about moving the feet towards the table that represents the heavenly banquet. And this meal that Christ establishes with his people, he wants you to sit at his table. And he said, man, you're welcome here. We got this book, I don't know why probably don't have time for this, but I'll share it anyways. I've got this book that we read to our... Chloe loves this book. It's, it's called uh, Tea with the Queen. Okay? And it's all about this girl who gets this invitation in the mail that she's going to get to have tea with the queen. And, and, and the whole rest of the book is devoted to the proper etiquette for, for what you need to do when you have tea with the queen. Like, don't you talk with your mouth full when you have tea with the queen. Don't you, don't you use loud voices when you have tea with the queen. Don't put your elbows on the table when you have tea with the queen. And, and it ends up just being her grandma and it's cute. But I think this is what we feel when we come to the table. It's like, I gotta be all put together. I'm gonna have a meal with the Messiah. But what this meal says is, you're welcome with your mess. Because the unleavened bread, the sinful, the sinless one was, was, was broken for sinners. So you got needs, you got shame, you got guilt. Walk to, up to the table. You are welcome there. Well, think about this as you partake of the elements and you, you hold, or I should say, you, you take them up in your hands and perhaps you walk back to your seat and you sit next to your wife or your husband. 
Last night's fight is now thrust into the light of the cross. As you hold in your hand the emblem of the one who gave his life for you, his enemy, welcomes you to the table. How in the world are you not going to move towards your spouse in love, no matter what was said, and try to reconcile and rededicate yourself to that sort of love? And we're getting this. We're beholding this in the breaking of this bread. Or as we eat and we drink. I mean, think about this. Why? Why does Jesus use a meal to do this? Well, we need food all the time. Right? We're constantly in need. We need daily bread. He's saying, man, partake of it. You need the gospel every day. And this is my commitment to you. I will feed you. I will sustain you. I will supply what you need. As you, I mean, yes, it's not going to actually satisfy you, right? It's like this is, this wouldn't even satisfy Levi. He, he would be asking for more. I'm not even going to fill an infant with this. But we know what it represents. God's commitment to us. His commitment to you to provide. You don't just need manna in the wilderness or one meal like those with the 5,000. You need a Savior who has committed himself to you, to providing for you for, forever. And then finally, as we bow our head in prayer, having uh, partaken of it, and, or maybe we lift our hands up in thanks to God for what he's done, Gosh, we're reminded of what he said around the table. That I'm going to eat this with you again when I come in my kingdom. In other words, he's going to keep you. We're reminded, we behold in the breaking that this is just the beginning. We're not just looking back to the cross. We're looking forward to his return. He will keep. He will sustain. He's not going to let us go. And it's only up from here. Behold all that as we come around the table together. This is God's way of sustaining us, of revealing himself to us in the wilderness. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the meal. Thank you for barraging our senses, all of our senses, with your grace. Thank you for not just telling us your gospel, but giving us sightings of it around the table in the broken bread. I pray that you would meet each one of us now. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen.